open your Bibles to Gospel Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be at. What I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then we'll get to work on this great chapter, this great little section, and the story in the life of Jesus that Mark records for us. Father, we ask you right now that you would just help us open our eyes. We need to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus, and we want to be transformed by Jesus. We don't want to just hear information about Jesus. We want to see Jesus so that Jesus changes us, impacts us, affects us, transforms us. So God, for that to happen, we need your spirit to move. We need this to be more than just simply a Bible study or information being transmitted from a book into our hearts, into our minds. We need to be changed. So we ask you, God, that you would just move amongst us, move with us, and just open our minds, open our hearts to be changed. And God, we commit this time in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this evening by basically saying one of the things that we realize about Jesus is that Jesus is always doing good. He's always healing people. He's always preaching good news. Uh, he's always telling people about God's good kingdom. And one of the things that we've seen so far in this book, and we've actually only been through one chapter, but what Jesus has done already so far is he's healed a lot of people. He's spoken a lot of messages. He's done a lot of good. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive. What we see here today in the passage that we're going to be reading in just a moment is for the very first time in Mark's record of Jesus' life is we see negative response actually getting into the interplay of what's going on in the story. That Jesus does something, Jesus says something that generates negative response. And one of the things that we'll take a look at in verses 1 through 12, it's a story that some of you are probably familiar with if you were ever brought up in the church or you learned church uh, Bible stories. This is a story that probably you're familiar with. I remember when I was, uh, before I even became a Christian, when I was involved in the Catholic Church, probably maybe a late teen, or I should say early teen, probably before middle school. I remember hearing this story. I, I don't know, I went to some sort of Catholic retreat, and I remember the gal telling this whole story about how this young guy was brought on a mat, and they opened up the top of the roof, they let this guy down, and Jesus healed him. For some reason, that story always stuck in my head. And the point that I want to make is that, uh, about that is this. This story is very uh, well-known. A lot of people are aware of it and familiar with it. But what Jesus does is when they bring this guy to Jesus who is paralyzed, what Jesus does, first of all, is he, rather than heals him like he's been traditionally known to do, Jesus does something completely unexpected, completely out of the ordinary. Rather than healing this guy start straight up, he actually looks at the guy and says, you're forgiven. It's very confusing. Like, why would Jesus do that? So what we'll take a look at in this story is there's at least three responses I think that Mark wants us to be aware of. The first response we'll take a look at is confusion and disappointment. We'll see that in the first five verses, and we'll talk a lot, little bit about that in a moment. The second response that Mark records for us is offense and anger. We're going to see the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, finally come onto the scene. We'll hear a lot about these guys, and we'll talk more about these guys in the weeks to come. Right now, we'll just sort of leave them on the sideline. We'll briefly mention them. But what we see about these guys is actually they have a very negative response. They're full of anger, full of wrath and frustration, because what they hear Jesus is saying is not sinking with them. It's frustrating them. They think what Jesus is saying is actually a blasphemy. And if anybody else but Jesus said what Jesus said, it would be blasphemy. But 
the final type of response that we see is rejoicing and celebration. So with that being said, I'm going to take a look at the first five verses. We'll read it, and we'll talk about it. And it really has to do with confusion and disappointment. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, uh, it was reported that he was at home. So Jesus was out as sort of an itinerant preacher going around from town to town, village to village, place to place, sharing the gospel with people. And when Jesus came back home, uh, it would seem as if the majority of Jesus' life and home was probably considered this area called Capernaum. It was where uh, Simon Peter came from, John came from, the major core of Jesus' discipleship group. They all came from this little fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. And it seemed to be the area in which Jesus spent the majority of his time. So Jesus comes back from sort of this little itinerant preaching schedule, and he comes back and he goes into his house, and one of the first things that becomes known throughout the entire little fishing village is that Jesus is home, and they immediately show up on the doorstep, ring the doorbell, and say, we want a Bible study. We want you to tell us more about what you've been talking about. So everybody crams into the house. There's no more room. People are literally just all around the place at the front door. There's literally sitting on each other's lap. In some ways, it kind of reminds me of the time that I actually went to China and I was on a bus. And there are people everywhere. And I'm not very tall. I'm 5'11". And, but compared to these other people there in China, I'm, I'm a little bit taller than them. So I'm holding on to stuff, trying to make sure I don't get thrown all over the place. And there are people all around me, swarming around me, people in my underarmpit and people next to my body, touching parts of my body that I normally don't want people to touch or in portions of my sphere that I normally don't want people in portions of my sphere. And yet that's what it reminds me of. They were cramming in all around Jesus. They wanted to be near him. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to be close to him. And they crammed into this little community group that was no longer a little community group anymore, but radically, massively huge community group. And Jesus was telling them about God, about God's kingdom, about what Jesus was coming to do. And what Mark goes on to tell us in the story, and says, And they were gathered together so that there was not room, not even at the door. And while he was preaching the word to them, they came, and they came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when he had made an opening, they let him down on the, on the bed of which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. So these guys actually are very creative. They're looking for some sort of way because in their mind they know, they've heard stories, heard rumors, perhaps have even seen what, hit, what Jesus has actually already done, that Jesus has healed a leper, Jesus just speaks and does things, heals people. So in their mind, they have their, little, their, their buddy, their friend who's paralyzed. We don't know exactly why he's paralyzed, uh, to assume just as foolish, but the point of the matter is, is that he's paralyzed. And they want their buddy to be able to run around with him, to hang out with him, to do stuff with him again. So good friends, they bring uh, their paralyzed buddy to Jesus, expecting Jesus to actually heal them. They can't get into the house because there's no room for them to get in the house. So what they do is they're creative. They literally dismember the house. They tear the house apart. They peel off the beams on the top of the house, and they let their buddy into the actual room. And can you imagine that if we were here in the evening service, and all of a sudden there was like crackling coming from the ceiling, and chicken wires falling down, and there's all sorts of dirt and leaves falling through the ceiling, and all of a sudden we see some guy drop in in the middle on a bed, and he's paralyzed, we pretty much would be affected by that. We would have to somehow address that reality that just now invaded our whole scenario. That's what happened. All right, Jesus is preaching. 
it's probably in his house or one of his buddy's house. The house is destroyed, and they bring some guy who's paralyzed on a bed in front of Jesus. And what Jesus does is completely unique. It's totally unexpected. Jesus looks at this guy who's paralyzed and says, I forgive you. Now you would imagine the confusion that's going on right there. And I think Mark writes this to kind of leave us with this thought in our mind, like, why would Jesus say, I forgive you? Like, why would Jesus grant forgiveness to this guy? Was it because the hole in the roof? Now, it, it's, it can't be that. It's way more than that. And it wasn't like Jesus, like, I forgive you for destroying my house, right? Because it, it's so much, I mean, if, if that's what Jesus was saying, I forgive you for, then there'd be no reason why the scribes, Pharisees, religious leader would want to kill Jesus later because Jesus has every right to do that. It's his house. If he wants to forgive him for destroying it, that's fine. But Jesus somehow, what he's saying, uh, goes way beyond just simply destruction of a house or a domestic dispute. But Jesus is looking into his soul and saying something profound. I forgive you. This is, in a lot of ways, perhaps confusing to this guy. Like, now... If, if you were paralyzed and you were to go find Jesus and track him down, you would imagine, you would think the greatest need in your life is to be made whole. But the greatest need in your life is to make sure that you have hands again that can be used or make sure that you have feet that can be used. Not forgiveness. If you want forgiveness, you don't go to Jesus in a little house in the seashore of Galilee. You go to the temple. You bring an offering. You go to the priest. You ask them to absolve you of your sin by offering a sacrifice and them pronouncing the cleansing touch of God's hand over your life. You don't go to an itinerant preacher in the middle of Podunk Town. They go to Jesus expecting to be healed. But Jesus says, I forgive you. In some ways, this is totally confusing because really what I think Jesus is trying to say is that you think the greatest need in your life is to be healed. That's what you think. And it may be glaringly obvious to everybody else that everybody else, if you were to ask them, what do you think the greatest need in, you know, this guy who's paralyzed life? Everybody would probably say the same thing. Well, he needs to be healed. It's the most important thing in his life is he needs to be healed. But apparently to Jesus, he didn't get that memo. Or he was very confused himself. Or there was just, he was on a totally different, another dimension. He was not in tune or in touch with what was reality in front of him. Or he was king. And he knew exactly what this guy needed. So therefore, Jesus looks to this guy and says, really, what you need more than anything, you think you need to be healed from paralysis. I know what you need more than anything is you need to be made right with God. You need God to intervene. You need God to transform. You need God to give you a new heart. You need God to forgive you. That's what you need. And the reality of this is very significant because at the end of the day, what this means to us is that oftentimes we have misplaced desires. In other words, what we oftentimes think are the most important desires or the most important driving passions or forces in our life really are actually not that important to God in His overall purpose for our lives. This is absolutely, this devastates us. Because at the end of the day, this is one of the reasons why, if you want to know, why sometimes you're very disappointed by God. Has God ever disappointed you? Maybe you ever asked him for something and he says no? Hasn't given you what you expected? Hasn't done for you what you thought he should do? Well, this is exactly what's happening with this guy at this moment. And it's as if 
Jesus is not saying, I'm not going to heal you. What he is saying is, I'm going to get to that. I will heal you. But first things first, the most important thing in your life is you need to be made right with God. You need to have your desires in a proper order because right now your desires are out of sync and out of order. And if I give you what you want, you'll be healed, but you won't be free. You won't be free. You won't be changed. Let me give you an example. All of us, no matter what type of phase or place in life that we are, all of us have something, some ideal scenario in our minds of what we think, what we expect life should be like. All of us, we do. All of us, we can look at something in our life and say, if I just had this, life would actually be better. Life would be more helpful. I would be able to survive. I would be at rest. I would have comfort. I would have peace. Every one of us have some sort of definition of that in our life. All of us just like the paralyzed guy who says, if I can just be healed, my life would be different. All of us are just like him. Let me give you an example. Don't think there's a lot of moms here, but the reality is if that you say, for example, you're a mom, you would think the most important thing in your life would be to make sure, if you have, especially if you've got young kids, to make sure that your kids are on a schedule, everything's fine-tuned, and you're able to kind of have some sort of control over their life. If you're a student, for example, you may think the most important thing in your life right now, the thing in which you gear and organize and structure every little part of your life to somehow accomplish is you've got to get good grades. Because if you're a student, you've got to succeed. That is the most important thing in your life. And the thing that you perhaps maybe even pray the most about, God, help me to get good grades. Here's another one. If you're single, if you're single, perhaps for you, you may think the most important thing in your life is to somehow get married. To find a spouse that you can get married. To be a part of some sort of, to fulfill that. In your mind, you think, I'm not completely satisfied. I'm not completed. What I need more than anything is I need a spouse. Then I will be satisfied. If you're kind of venturing out to get a career, for some of you might be like, what I really need more than anything else in my entire life is I need a career. Because a career equals having you know, X amount of money. And X amount of money equals having the type of car that I really want. And it also means allowing me to be able to buy the house that I've always desired to be able to have all the things and the toys and the stuff that I've always wanted. And we have these desires that oftentimes drive us, but the problem is, is those desires are most part trivial. Now, what I want to make sure that you think about is the word trivial doesn't mean that they're not important or non-important, but trivial just simply means that they are not long-term. Most of the things that we desire so desperately right now in our, mo in our momentary lives Five years from now, maybe even six months from now, if you have it, the thing that you're desiring, would your life be changed six months from now? Would you be a different person six months from now? Would your life really be any better from now? What about five years from now? Will it change you? Will it actually give you everything that you truly desired and wanted? See, the problem with this guy who's paralyzed is that in his mind, he thinks that the most important thing that he could have or obtain is healing. That if he can get healing, his life will be different. But what Jesus is really trying to say is that just because you have healing doesn't mean your life will be any different or any better. We need to reprioritize your heart. Rewire your heart. Retool the way that you desire things. And that, guys, at the end of the day, is the problem with us. Is our desires. 
We've got desires for things that will actually either harm us or destroy us, or we desire things oftentimes that are good, but we desire them in a disproportionate manner. We feel like without these things, I can't live. So is there anything wrong with having a job? Is there anything wrong with desiring to have a job? None. But what if that job becomes the ultimate thing you're living for? What would happen if you come to find out that they're having layoffs and you may lose your job? If that's the ultimate thing you're building your life upon, losing that job would literally mean losing your entire life. Being married. Is there anything wrong with desiring to have a spouse? Nothing at all. It's great. It's a very good desire. I got 20 years under my belt. I just did that in March. I love being married. I love my wife. It's a good thing. But the reality is, it, if it becomes an ultimate thing, if it becomes that which defines me, that if without a spouse, without a wife, without a relationship, I'm a nobody, I have no identity, that means I'm building my entire life upon this one thing. And Jesus says, everything in this world is prone to rust, decay, corruption. It can be stolen. It can be washed away. Jesus knows something about us, that if we build our heart place our heart, fix our heart upon anything in this world, once it corrupts, once it breaks, once it fades, once it shatters, you know what happens? You shatter with it. You break. You know what Jesus is saying to this guy? I think what he's intending is that one of the dirtiest tricks God can perhaps play is to just give you everything you want. And you know what Jesus is saying? I love you too much to give you everything that you want. I'm not going to play that trick on you. I made you. I created you. But I'm not going to play that trick on you. You want healing. First, we're going to deal with your heart. And this is where all healing begins. It begins with our heart. What God does is reorganize, reorders our affections, reorders our desires, because it's our desires that keep getting us back into sin. It's our desires that cause us to be rebels against God. It's our desires that set us at enmity with God because we desire things that have nothing to do with God or we desire good things that can be blessed by God but we desire them in a disproportionate way whereby we think that by having this, I will have life. And what God says, no, no, I want to be a life giver. I want to be your savior. I don't want a marriage to save you. I don't want a career to save you. I want to save you. If a marriage is your savior, then you at some point will be shattered when that marriage doesn't work. And trust me, every marriage, I don't care how good a marriage you have, at some point it will fragment, it will break, it will have little fissures in the entire thing. It doesn't matter how good a marriage you have. But if you look to that to be your Savior, then you will break when it begins to break. And Jesus says, I love you too much just to give you what's on your, your heart. First, we've got to deal with your heart. We've got to change your heart. There's this pas uh, passage in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Weight of Glory. It's one of my favorite passages. Probably some of you guys know it. I'm going to read it anyways, even though you maybe heard me use it several times. Here's what it is. He says this. He's talking about our desires. Really what I think Jesus is trying to convey and communicate to this guy is that your desires don't go deep enough. You just simply want to be healed. Jesus says, I want you to go deeper. Think about that. How many of you, Jesus, would look at in your life and say, you desire things that are trivial. They're too surfacey. They don't go deep enough. But God, I want to get married. That's a good thing. But you need to go deeper. 
there's a deeper joy to be had. There's a deeper wealth of joy to be had that's even deeper than marriage, even deeper than a mate, even, even deeper than you know, money or a job or a career. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but actually too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when intimate joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer to have a holiday or vacation at sea. He says, we are far too easily pleased. I love this analogy. As if walking up to a little kid in the middle of a slum, he's got dirt and mud all over his face. You're like, do you want to go and have a vacation on the ocean, on a, you know, Prince's Cruises? I mean, there's buffets. All you can eat food, and food's really good, and it's all the good stuff. Like, as much as you want throughout the entire night as you want, it's always there. It replenishes itself. It's like magic. No, you just want to make mud pies. You don't get it. That's the problem. We don't get it. He's far too easily pleased. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying, is that our desires don't go deep enough. We settle for little things. We're like half-hearted people that are just way too easily pleased. And here's what Jesus is saying. He says, I love you way too much to allow you to just simply settle for mud pies. To just simply settle for things that will leave you defiled and broken and stained. I love you too much to let it stop at that. I want to press you on. I want to cause you to go deeper and cause you to press in further to me. That's what Jesus does with this guy. He says, we need to retool your desires. We need to redesign your desires in your heart. And that's what Jesus does is he changes them. There's a section in uh, Tim Keller's book. It's called uh, King's Cross. It's actually a commentary to some degree, more or less, maybe not a commentary, but it is a book about the Gospel of Mark. It's actually a great little book, and I encourage you guys, maybe pick it up. It's got a lot of great information in it. Um, one of the things that I was reading the other day as I was checking this out, he's got this little section where he actually talks about a, seg- a segment in um, C.S. Lewis's writing called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I'm going to tell you about it. I'll read it to you in just a moment here. It's about this guy by the name of Eustace. And Eustace, if you've seen The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, maybe you saw the movie or maybe you read the book, uh, I think you would actually have to read the book in order to get the full weight of this because the movie kind of leaves out a lot of segments or parts within it. But this guy Eustace is just a jerk. Everybody hates him. He's snobby. He's got a bad attitude. And nobody likes being around Eustace. He's always talking smack and every, every, around everybody and just has no muscles to back anything. Um, and he thinks he's intellectual and, you know, smart, and everybody just hates this kid. They end up on the vo- uh, Dawn Treader, and they end up kind of finding their way to this island. They get off this island, they start walking around, and uh, Eustace sort of wanders off, and while he's wandering around, he comes across this cave, and in this cave is this massive mound of, like, gold and diamonds and loot and all this stuff, and he's, in his mind, he's thinking, this is great, I'm rich, I can pay everybody back, I can take advantage of everybody that's taking advantage of me, uh, I'll show them. And he basically, while he's sort of feeling the weight of this new changed life that he's got, because now he's going to get back with, against all those that have taken advantage of him, he falls asleep on this mound of loot. And what he doesn't realize is that this actual mound of loot belonged to a dragon, all right? A, a dragon. And what happens is he falls asleep when he wakes up from this, you know, slumber, he realizes he's actually, he's turned himself, he himself has turned into a dragon. And he begins to be frustrated about this because he realizes he'll never be able to go back to the people that, you know, really weren't his friends anyhow in the first place. They didn't really care about him anyhow. But now it's, the deal's sealed. 
that he has no recourse of ever getting back. He's a dragon. No, everyone will shun him and be afraid of him. There'll be no hope of any type of relationship with Eustace ever again. Until what ends up happening is Eustace comes across, or Aslan actually tracks Eustace down and confronts him. And he says to Eustace, he says, you can actually be changed. You need to go into the water and change. But what ends up happening, first of all, is that Eustace discovers that by kind of peeling away the layers, he can actually rip the skin off. Because obviously he's a dragon, he's a serpent. Dragons, serpents shed their skin. So here he sheds his skin and he looks down and there's this big mound of skin on the ground. But he realizes he's still a dragon. So he keeps scratching. He does this three times and he realizes every single time he scratches, all he's simply doing is shedding an outer skin. But he's still a dragon. But when Aslan comes up to him, he says, no, what you really need to do is you need to let me take the skin off you, and then I will put you into the water and wash you. And he creates this sort of magical pool of water. And so Aslan comes, and he takes the skin and throws him into the water. And then later, Eustace catches up with the rest of the people on the Dawn Treader, and he actually shares with them basically the story of conversion. This is a great story. I want you to listen to it. Here's what he says. Talking about Aslan, he says, I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate by now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my very heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. Well, peeled, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. He says, just as I thought I had done myself the three other times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, ever so much thicker, darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. Then he caught hold of me, and he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I turned into a boy again. This is a story of a guy who's describing the fact that he had no ability, no power on his own to change himself. And this is the way a lot of us act. We think that somehow we have the ability to change our lives. It's one of the reasons why some of us actually start going to church is we think that if we can go to church, we can make deals with God, we can somehow ask God to help us to be a little bit better, we can self-improve ourselves by, you know, doing good things and somehow becoming religious. And so a lot of times we come to Jesus on these false pretenses. We expect to change things. We, we hope to keep saving ourselves. We have these desires, but these desires don't go deep enough. And what we need more than anything is we need Jesus to change us. And if you've ever had a real true encounter with Jesus, you know that sometimes it's extremely painful. Because just like Eustace, Jesus has claws. And they go deep. And it hurts. And it stings. And it's very difficult oftentimes to feel that type of pain. But at the end of the day, it's the pain that's created or caused by a master surgeon actually doing surgery to remove that which is destructive within your heart. It's Jesus retooling your heart, giving you new desires, changing you. You can't change yourself. And that's the problem that we have. We're just like the paralyzed guy. We think that if we just go to Jesus, make the demands, ask him to do these things, give us the desires of our heart, that everything will be better. But Jesus says, no, what we really need to do first and foremost is you need to be made right with God, and as a result of that, be given a new heart, and then then I will heal you. I'll change you. Our desires are deceptive. We need to have our desires radically changed and transformed, and that's what Jesus does. 
He does this with this guy, and he immediately tells him, he says, the most important thing in your life is you think you need to be healed. Really, what's most important is you need to be forgiven. You need to be forgiven. So Jesus looks him in the eyes and says, more importantly than anything is you need to be made right with God. And what's amazing is that Jesus speaks into his heart and actually pardons him, forgives him. There's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, and he has a book. It's called Free of Charge. Here's what he describes about forgiveness. He says, fundamentally, forgiveness is not about saying something, not even about putting something into effect by speaking. It's about doing something. When God forgave, he put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. So forgiveness is not just simply saying, you're forgiven or I forgive you. Forgiveness is actually doing something. You need to know that because some of you think that you have forgiven people, but you've not forgiven people. You've actually just said that you've forgiven them, but in your heart, you're still bitter, you're still jealous, you're still angry, you still wish evil thoughts. Every time their name comes up, you're still aggravated, agitated, frustrated, angry, and upset. You've not really forgiven them. All you've done is you said you've forgiven them, but you've not really done anything to affect that forgiveness. That's not the type of forgiveness that God has done. The type of forgiveness that God has done is not one of just words, but as you see with Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark, is that every time Jesus says something, he always backs it up by actions. He always has words and deeds synchronized and united. They're always congruent with one another, always connected. There's never an incongruency or a disconnect with Jesus' words and his actions. For you and I, there's always an incongruency with our words and our actions. We are always saying one thing and then doing the other. All the time. This is the way we are. We're imperfect, but Jesus is perfect. So Jesus is going to say, I forgive you, but what he's going to do is going to back it up with actions. That God declares forgiveness, but the way that God declares forgiveness is by action. He does something. He enacts something. He sends Jesus. Remember, Mark's been telling us about Jesus. He's a king, but he's not like any other king. Because most other kings, when they come, when they establish authority, when they establish their throne, they look for rebels and they seek to destroy rebels. When they come and they establish their throne, they're looking for ways to bring destruction upon people and to establish their authority. But this Jesus, this king, when he comes, rather than oppressing and afflicting his people, this king will be oppressed and afflicted by his people, and ultimately because of their sins. He will be oppressed, and he will be afflicted for the sins of a bunch of rebels. See, oftentimes the misthought is that Jesus comes and he helps people that are worthy. But in reality, Jesus comes to help and to heal and to save not those that are worthy, but actually those that are rebels. And he does so by laying his life down. This is the course that Mark's taking us on. This is the course, that path that Mark will lead us down following Jesus, that Jesus is a king, he does miracles, he heals people, he forgives people, but he does so at a great price, which leads us to the next response that we see in the crowd is we see offense and anger. In verses 6 to 7, it says this, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This question is a very important question. It's very legitimate. In fact, I would go so far to say it's very legitimate. It's something that should be listened to and understood. And the point of the matter that Mark wants us to think about is that this question is so legitimate, so important, that he wants us to be aware that the truth of the matter is, is you're right. 
who does have the power to forgive sins. Only God does. I can't tell you you're forgiven of your sin. I can only forgive offenses that you've done against me. In other words, if you offended somebody else, I can't go to you in proxy of them and say, you're forgiven. I don't have the authority to do that. I can't stand here and say, look, God forgives you because I'm not God. I can only declare to you what God has already done through somebody else, particularly in this case, Jesus. But what Jesus is doing is saying, I forgive you. In other words, Jesus is stepping. In fact, you can even go so far as to say what Jesus is actually doing is he's completely upsetting the entire social order, the entire religious social order. Because like I said earlier, if you wanted forgiveness of your sins, you don't go to Capernaum to an itinerant preacher and seek for forgiveness of sins. You go to the temple. You know what Jesus is saying? By saying, I forgive you? He's saying, I've come and I've replaced the temple. I'm here. You don't need to go to the temple anymore because I have the authority. All offenses have been done against me. And I'm here to forgive you. I'm here to give you that which you need to be set free. So we see these guys, uh, religious leaders, their response is one of offense and anger. And it basically is the very first time in Mark's gospel account in which we actually see a negative response. And these guys come against Jesus. The first response was confusion. You know, why would Jesus do this? Uh, why would he actually forgive him of his sins when in reality most people would automatically assume that what this guy really needs more than anything is he needs to be healed, but Jesus forgives him. The second response is anger and frustration, and these guys are definitely frustrated about what Jesus is doing. The third response is we see rejoice and celebration. Verse 8 says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these matters within your heart? What is easier to say? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed, and he went out before them all, so that they were all amazed, and they glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. What Jesus does is he turns to this guy, and he basically asks this question, what's easier to say? Scholars through 2,000 years of history have argued and discussed what did Jesus mean by this? And probably one of the most you know, well-known interpretations of this is that what Jesus is saying is that it's actually easier to just say you're forgiven because you have no backing. You can't prove that. But if you were to say you're healed, rise, take up your bed and walk. And you say that to a paralyzed person, rise, take up your bed and walk. And if they rise, take up their bed and fall, right? you know that you're not legit. You know that you don't have the goods. You don't have the backing. You are an illegitimate preacher. You don't have what it takes to be this authoritative person. So what Jesus is perhaps saying is that, well, it's, of course, it's easier to say, right, take up your, or it's, a, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. But other scholars have also looked at this, and they've kind of thought maybe something a little bit deeper that Mark might be hinting at, and this is kind of what I lean towards in terms of thinking this. I think perhaps what Jesus is saying is that really saying, rise, take up your bed and walk is easy compared to, to the path of what it takes to forgive sins. Telling this guy to stand up, take up your bed and walk, that's relatively easy to the other part. Saying your sins are forgiven? Do you even know the weightiness of the path, of the price, of what it takes to be able to say that? I think this is what Jesus is implying. That saying your sins are forgiven 
might be easy to say, might be easy to declare, but the backing, the evidence, the ability, the action to prove it, to enact it, to enable it, is so incredibly costly that what Mark records for us is that really at the end of the day, in order for Jesus to say to this paralyzed guy, your sins are forgiven, and then counteract that or, or to really complete, complete that with rise, take up your bed and walk, and he does rise and take up his bed and walk, is really I think what Jesus is trying to say. In order for this paralyzed man to be given his legs back so he can dance, so he can be free to dance, my legs must be bound to the tree. In, afford, in order for this man to have his hands back, in order to use them again, in order to be free and to hug people and love people and use them to serve God, my hands must be bound and nailed to the cross. In order for this man to have new desires, a new heart, my heart must be pierced. Jesus is saying that the road to having a new heart, to being forgiven, the pathway to accomplish that, is so extremely costly. But what Mark wants us to see is that this is the type of king that we have. He's a king that comes to this earth. He's a king that leaves glory. He's a king that's willing to be bound. He's a king who is willing to be wounded and oppressed and afflicted so that people like you and I who are so confused as to what our greatest desires truly are, that oftentimes, if we follow our heart, they will mislead us, they will misguide us, and they will lead us to even further defilement, further brokenness, further sin, further death, perhaps even hell. But what we have is a God who says, I will not play tricks with you, and I will not just give you what you want. I will give you what is most significant, most weighty, most important, is I will give you my life so that you can be forgiven, be given a new heart, new desires, new affections. You can't save yourself. You must let Jesus' claws dig deep into your heart to peel the skin off peel the layers away. You can't do this yourself. This is what Jesus comes to do, to say. I want to finish this whole thing just by worshiping and responding to God. But I want you to notice before we begin to worship and sing, and I have Tyler come on up and we'll begin to sing in a moment here, but I want you to be aware of is this. Is that the very first time in the entire Bible Jesus actually forgives a guy that doesn't come up to him looking for forgiveness. It's really unique. Like, why, why would Mark record that? Why would Jesus forgive this guy? Most other cases, you'll see someone walk up and say, Jesus, forgive me. And Jesus, I forgive you. Or you see people come to God and they repent and say, God, forgive me. And God forgives them. But not here. This guy says nothing. There's nothing that is verbalized. There's nothing that's articulated. But Jesus says, I forgive you. So unless Mark is completely contradicting the rest of the Bible because the Bible is going to be very clear that God gives pardon, God gives forgiveness to those that ask for forgiveness. Unless he's completely contradicting the rest of the Bible, perhaps there might be something a lot deeper that's going on here. Perhaps what's really happening is Jesus knows what's in this guy's heart. That he knows that really this guy also desires to be clean, to be washed, to be forgiven. And if that's the case, it tells us at least two things. One, Jesus knows our hearts. Two, 
tells us that no matter how imperfect your articulation of where your life is at tonight, the most unstable, most brokenhearted effort to just ask God to forgive you and wash you and cleanse you, Jesus will do it. It tells me that Jesus is actually aggressive with his grace. He's just looking for the slightest glimmer, the slightest mustard seed of faith, the tiniest glimmer of trust and confidence that he has the ability. Because some of you might be like, I don't have a lot of faith, but do you want Jesus to heal you? Do you want Jesus to forgive you? Do you even want that to be true in your heart? Does the gospel plead? Does it, does it even resonate to some degree in your heart to where you would even desire it to be true? I think Jesus looks at those slight movements on your behalf, jumps on it, and showers you with grace. He's aggressive with his grace. And he heals this guy, and he forgives this guy. But he also changes him by retooling his heart, reforming, changing his desires, his affections. Guys, you can't change yourself. Your greatest needs oftentimes really aren't your greatest needs. You, you, you can't possibly know what you have great needs of. But Jesus does. So I encourage you as we worship tonight, as we respond, as we partake of communion, as we sing, go to Jesus. Ask him to wash you. Ask him to cleanse you. Ask him to give you a new heart. I think what you'll discover is that Jesus has actually been after you for a really long time. Maybe you haven't had ears to hear for a while, but maybe tonight you do. Trust him. Call upon him. We're going to pray. We'll respond. We'll sing. Confess sin. We'll repent of sin. Partake of communion. Jesus is here. God, we thank you so much for grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are are eager to forgive. You are eager to shower and cleanse and you're eager to get dragon suit off of us. We can't take it off, Lord. At the end of the day, we need you. Our efforts are futile, and broken, and always misguided. We never go deep enough, but you do. So we ask Jesus that you would help us just to, to confess sin, to worship you, to bend our knees before you, maybe even get on our faces and just ask you to wash and cleanse us.